Okay, it is nice to see everyone. And I get the privilege of bringing God's word, so I thank you for this opportunity. Um, I've been meditating for some time now on the prologue or the introduction to the Gospel of John for some time. Um, and I could meditate on this introduction probably till I turn 90 and still not plumb the depths of the meaning and majesty of, this, uh, of the, the first few verses of this gospel here of John. So it's with great fear and trepidation I'd like to try to explain the meaning of these first few verses of this gospel. And now for those of you that were here last Sunday night, I'll be repeating some of the things that I said, but um, uh, there'll be some other things, but it's good to hear the truth again, and it's good for us to hear the eternal truths over and over uh, again. So um, I'd like to um, start by asking us to turn in our Bibles to the Gospel of John, and I'm going to read the first five verses and then jump down to verse 14, okay, and go on from there a few more verses. So John's Gospel... beginning at verse 1 in the chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now, the opening of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, this is simple yet majestic language, and it's mysterious in its meaning. In the beginning was the Word. What comes to mind when you hear or you read those words? In the beginning was the word. Um, maybe for you, the words of Genesis 1.1. We read that this morning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For many of us, the opening words of the whole Bible come to mind when we read John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Sacred Scripture opens with, in the beginning, God, assuming the existence of God. So there's no attempt here to um, explain or to try to prove the existence of God. It's just assumed that God exists. What's also assumed is that God created the universe, and everything in the universe, as well as space and time. So who were John's audience 
as he penned these words under the inspiration of the apostle, I'm sorry, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Well, there were at least two groups that John was addressing that he, uh, as he wrote this gospel. Uh, first was the first century Jews. And the second group would be Greeks and those who were influenced by Greek thinking and philosophy. And you might ask, well, why Greeks? Well, think about it. We take our Bible. The Old Testament ends at the prophet Malachi. And then the New Testament opens 400 years later, the birth of the Messiah, Jesus. So there's a 400-year span where we don't have anything in the Word of God. But that doesn't mean nothing was happening. There was a lot happening um, in the area of the Middle East where Israel uh, locate, is, located, is located today. A lot was happening uh, back then. Uh, and maybe some of you are familiar with Alexander the Great, a okay, great conqueror who brought Greek culture and language and philosophy ideas wherever he conquered. He conquered much of the uh, known ancient world at the time. Um, so Greek would be, the Greek thought, philosophy, and language would be very common to the people uh, of the first century, the first few centuries for that matter. Um, so for first century Jews like many of us, the first words of scripture would have immediately come to mind. God spoke and all things came into being. Now the word of God, or the, excuse me, the word here. Uh, in John's gospel, where it says, in the beginning was the word. This word, word, is the Greek word logos. It's translated um, from the Greek because the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, in a way, you know how English is used today as, a, as an international language of business, of commerce? Um, Greek was, was used the same way at that time. So the New Testament was written in Greek. And John uses this word for word. He uses logos here. Um, and that's the word used here. The opening gospel of these words. And in using the word logos to refer to Jesus Christ, he would somehow, um, being associated, the word of God, Jesus Christ, being associated with the creative power of God. However, the idea of word would mean even more to a Jewish person in the first century than to, it would even to us today. Because the idea of 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 word meant something even more. It was something more concrete, uh, more of an event or a deed. You could say that to the first century Jew that the spoken uh, deed was done. When God spoke, the deed was done, okay? Um, as one commentator says. So if you put yourself in the first century Jewish sandals, so to speak, um, what happened when God spoke? Well, it was. It got done instantly. Then God said, let there be light. What happened? There was light. Okay. In Isaiah 55, 11, we, we read these words. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. God sends his word. It gets accomplished. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. And in Psalm 148, 5, we read, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded, and they were created. 
So I hope you can see how a first century Jew would somewhat be prepared for the thought that the word of God would somehow, could somehow be seen and could be touched as well as heard and even somehow find expression in a life. So God was preparing the people at that time. Therefore, the first century Jew were to read the opening words of the epistle to Hebrews written uh, as, past, as uh, Pastor Steve has been going through Hebrews in the evening, uh, the epistle to the Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who were experiencing persecution. And they were, you know, some of them should we go back to temple worship. And this epistle was written um, to, to tell them, no, you're not, it's not way back to temple worship, but to trust in the Lord and to know who Jesus Christ is. So um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. And, and let's look at these words here and see if they sound familiar. Anything in these words sound familiar. In Hebrews 1, starting at verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Sound familiar? who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he by himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This was written to a group of Jewish believers. And it sounds very similar to what we find in John, the first couple of verses of the first chapter of the Gospel of John. That's the first group that I talked about, the first audience that, that John was trying to reach. The second, the Greeks of the day, and I explained why. And what about logos to the Greeks of the day? Well, the Greeks would understand the concept of logos not in religion, but in philosophy. Around 2600 BC, a Greek philosopher by the name of Heraclitus, Heraclitus okay, I'm not getting these words right, um, he said that all of life is in a state of change. All of life is in a state of change. But also he thought, and he thought this was true, um, that if all of life is in a state of change, uh, why isn't everything in existence in, in, ex in a perpetual chaotic state? Why isn't there chaos all the time? Well, he surmised that life is not chaos because this state of change is not random, but it's ordered change. And, and you know, it's interesting, his philosophy when he thought about this. This is 2600, around 2600 BC. I've read some and I've seen some lectures. Um, people today still debate about life and about the, the minuteness of life and atoms and are they random or not. And the debate goes on today. Is it chaos or no? Some say it's not chaotic, it's not random, but things are ordered. Things are ordered. So I think it's interesting how this, um, this thinking is still with us, that men still, uh, mankind, men and women, still discuss and debate these things. Um, but getting back to what he believed, he, he reasoned that, he further reasoned that if the state of change is ordered, then there must be a divine reason or a word that controls this, that makes it orderly. So this reason or this word is logos. So the Greek word logos, it's the same word that John uses in the opening verse of his gospel. 
the very same word. So much more for Heraclitus, Heraclitus, okay, this controlling principle or matter, he considered it God's logos. Okay. This controlling principle extended to all events in history and to the mental order that rules the minds of men. Ultimately for him, logos became to him the mind of God controlling the world and all men. Interesting, isn't it? So we have in Greek philosophy an influence, 2600 BC, that influence influenced all of Greece. It comes down through the works of Plato, of Socrates, of the Stoics, and others. And John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses this word, this familiar word, logos, familiar to both Jews and to Greeks, to say that this logos of God has come to earth as a man, and we have seen him. Now, before we leave the Greeks, I want to point out that the Apostle Paul was used by God to engage the Greeks of his day right where they were in their philosophy. Um, if you have your Bibles, again, let's turn to Acts chapter 17 and find out what Paul does here. Go to Acts 17. Did I lose you yet? Are you with me? Okay. Sort of? Okay. We can have a rap session afterwards and I can clarify things that I maybe confused you with, but hopefully not. Hopefully things will get more clear, become clear. Okay, in Acts chapter 17, um, I'll start at verse 16. As Paul was on one of his missionary journeys, um, he's in Athens. And uh, this is familiar. If, you're, if you read the Bible, you'll be familiar with this. Um, starting at verse 16 of, uh, of Acts chapter 17. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, he was waiting for others to come, um, Timothy and uh, I believe it was Barnabas, he was waiting, while, or Timothy and Silas. While he waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some, things, some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Okay. Um, I'm not on Facebook, but would that be, be like Facebook? I don't know. Um, Sometimes it sounds like it. But, you know, they would gather in a certain place and that they would debate and they would like to hear new ideas and they would talk about ideas. But let's get back on, on, in verse uh, 22, okay? And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. 
Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all breath, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries for their dwellings so that they would seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as, we all, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance uh, of this all by raising him from the dead. And I'll, I'll stop there, but, but I think you get my point. Paul engaged the Greeks where they were at. He saw that they were a religious people. And they even had an altar to an unknown God. And he's proclaiming to them, this God that you say is unknown, I know. And this is who he is. Okay, um, You could read the rest of it and see um, how they responded. Some responded favorably to him. Some, you know, did not respond favorably. Uh, just like what we, what we have today. So, but it, it's interesting, don't you think? Um, you know, they had all these altars. They were very religious people. Um, I guess it would be like, I don't know, you go to a, a city, you see all these churches and maybe mosques and temples. Well, here you had all these pagan altars and places of worship. And, um, and just so that they covered all their bases, they had one to an unknown God. So they wanted to make sure um, they had everything covered there. So, so that's what they had. Um, now, God is active in revealing himself. And he's always been active in revealing himself. Paul brings that out in that passage in, in Acts that we just, um, just, just read about. Men um, are seeking God, and God is, 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 is reaching out. Um, in creation, we can see this. Um, turn to Romans chapter 1. We're only going to read two verses here. Look at Romans 1, 18 to 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them for God has shown it to them. For since in the creation of the world his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So even in creation, God expresses himself. And there's a way of worshiping the one true God. But man has not done that. So creation was not enough. Knowing that God exists through nature is not enough. We need to know his plans. So God has given us sacred scripture. We find God's plans. We, got, we find God's will and his way in sacred scripture. However... God is preeminently revealed through his son in the incarnation. In John 1.14 that we read a few minutes ago, 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is through Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, that we know God personally. But, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. Okay? Let's go back to John 1.1. 1, 1, okay? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John is saying three things in this first verse of the first chapter of his gospel. And I'd like to look at the three things that he's saying here very briefly. The first thing he's saying is that the word was. In the beginning, when God began creating the universe and space and time and matter, okay, along with it, the word already existed. In the beginning was the word. The word already existed. The second thing that John is saying is that the Word was with God. The Word and Jesus Christ, as we know now from reading on in John's Gospel, has a separate identity from God. He was with God. Um, so you have God and you have the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Now this is very subtle. Yet it's a significant statement that the Word was with God. Now the third and final thing that John is saying here in these, this, this, these two verses, he's saying, and the Word was God. John is telling us that Jesus is fully God. What does Jesus say to Philip? We read earlier, um, our second response of reading in John chapter 14. Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The Apostle Paul, in writing about the divinity of Jesus, says in Colossians 1.15, and I love this, this language. He, talking of Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Shouldn't that remind you of Hebrews 1? Talks about, about Jesus, what we just read. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, Paul tells us, for in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus himself tells the Pharisees who had been questioning him. And uh, in, G in John chapter 8, there's really, it got really nasty. The Pharisees were very nasty. And I guess nasty is a nice word, isn't it? Because they were out to kill Jesus. And, but that's another sermon. So Jesus is, in a way, sparring with the Pharisees. And he says this to them. They were questioning him. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This, now, what's he saying? And what do they say? Abraham, Abraham's dead. And you're saying you, you know Abraham? Before Abraham? Well, this I am statement that Jesus said is the clearest statement as to his divinity. Here, Jesus declared himself to be Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament that the Jews were familiar with. I am is from Exodus chapter 
14, where God is revealing himself to Moses. And Moses says, whom shall I say sent, sent me? When God sends Moses to deliver his people from Egypt and the slavery in Egypt, who shall I say sent me? He says, tell them I am has sent you. And Jesus is saying this very thing. Before Abraham was born, I am. He was in the beginning with God. John wants us to get this right about Jesus Christ. So he restates where the word Jesus was in the beginning. So again, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Look at verse 2. It says, he was in the beginning with God. So he's reiterating it. He wants to get it clear to his audience. He reiterates where the word was. Jesus was in the beginning. Jesus, the word, was in the beginning with God. Do you get this? Do you get this? This is profound. This is majestic language. It's incredible. It's stupendous. It's an earth-shattering revelation. And we have it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now go on to verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. What was made through Christ? What was made through Christ? All things, everything, yes, was just the earth and everything in it made through Christ? No, all things were made through Christ. Our solar system, our galaxy, space and time, other galaxies that are out there, the billions upon billions of stars and solar systems, and then some that are, the scientists tell us that are out there, these were all made through Christ. Jesus Christ was God's agent through which he created all things. Whether things visible that we can see, even with the telescope, or satellites that go out and explore, or invisible, things we can't see at the most minute level, molecular level, even in the spiritual realm, spiritual principalities, these have all been created through Jesus Christ. Without Christ, without the word, nothing would exist. Nothing would exist. I want to turn to Hebrews 1 again. And I want to start at verse 4. Take a look at this. Speaking of Jesus, having become so much better than the angels, he has by him, he, he has, excuse me, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. But when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And all the angels, of all the angels, he says, he who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than all your companions. Okay. 
what I want and what I hope you're getting is seeing Jesus. And I can't say in all his glory, because I'm not equipped, um, and we won't see Jesus in all his glory until we see him face to face. But I just want to hopefully give you a, a taste of what we have here in sacred scripture, of what God has revealed, that, that we don't grow accustomed to it. Um, uh, in Colossians, let's look at Colossians chapter 1. I just want to read a couple of verses here. Are you still with me? I didn't lose you? Okay. Okay, Colossians 1, um, verses 15 to 18, but let's start at 15. Again, this is beautiful. Listen to this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who was the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Again, this language, we see this in John's gospel. We see this in Hebrews, the, God, the, the epistle to the Hebrews. And we see it here in, in Paul's letters. I, I, I find it interesting, just as an aside, um, I think Pastor Steve majored in philosophy in college. I did not. I took philosophy courses. To go to college, you got to take some philosophy courses, Okay. But I, I remember one philosophy course, and let me get, read this verse. It says, um, uh, let's see, uh, let me read this here. Um, we had a professor that said, um, we don't know why, um, we don't know why, and he had a wall, and uh, I'll use this, okay? He basically said, we don't know why we can't just put our hand through a wall. Because, you know, atoms and all are flying all over the place. We should be able to put our hands through it. We don't know what holds everything together. And uh, I was 19, a brand new Christian. And here's this wise, learned professor of philosophy. And I'm thinking to myself, I wasn't bold or courageous enough uh, to say, I know what holds everything together. Uh, but I thought to myself in my heart and my mind, um, Jesus holds it all together. All things consist in him. He holds it all together. He's still holding it together. Isn't he wonderful? Isn't our God wonderful? This is the word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, I'd like to read a little bit of the Nicene Creed. And you might say, oh, pastor, we know the Nicene Creed. Why are you going there? Well, this, this fact that the word became flesh, that the word was God. There, if this was a hard concept for people to, to understand, and there were heresies going on at the time. So in the fourth century, at the Council of Nicaea, they came together and they said, this is what we believe as Christians. 
as followers of Jesus Christ, what God has revealed. And this is our statement of what we believe. And they needed to put down the heresies that were going on as to protect the people of God. And you know what? Heresies still exist today. Heresies still exist today. And this heresy, especially one of the heresies, um, Arianism, all right, that Jesus was basically saying Jesus was a God, a small God. Uh, he was God, not like God Almighty, but he was, he was a small God. He was a God, but didn't have the power of God. Um, so, and this heresy is still with us today um, in a cult that's very popular uh, today. Um, but listen to what the Nicene Creed says. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. He was made man and crucified, and for us, uh, he was made man and crucified, and also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again in glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And this is what Christians proclaim throughout the world today, in just about every church. Um, I read it because um, I know it by heart. I grew up reciting it. Many of you grew up reciting it. You could say it in your sleep, but I didn't want to lose uh, my place or what I was saying. Um, uh, but the, they were able to, what do we believe in a con succinct, concise way? And here we have the whole gospel in the Nicene Creed. Well, I'd like to, to draw things to a conclusion. And, um, uh, and basically, I'm qu quoting... Uh, uh, a Bible commentary and, and well-known preacher, uh, James Boyce, uh, used to pastor 10th Presbyterian Church uh, before he went home to be with the Lord, um, and that's in Philadelphia. Um, Boyce says that Jesus is God's greatest and best word to man. We know God's power in creation. We know God's plans in Scripture. We know his personality in the Son. Jesus is not only God's, most, God's first and most important and all-inclusive word of the Father, he is also God's last word. And read in Revelation 22, verses 12 and 13, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end the first and the last. And my question to us this morning, to you this morning is, do you know the word? Do you know the word made flesh? The word of God, who was with God and who was God, who is God, who became flesh, who was the first and the last, who was dead, came back to life, ascended into heaven, there is a man at the right hand of God right now. That is Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the almighty. He's there at the right hand of God. And he is coming back. He is coming back. He's the first and he's the last. Do you know him? I trust that you do know him. 
Well, let us pray. Almighty God, eternal God, our Lord, our Master, I am woefully inadequate in proclaiming your word and these truths, but they are here for us to read, for us to hear, and we need your Holy Spirit to quicken them to us. We need your Holy Spirit to impart faith to the hearer. We need your Holy Spirit to make us alive that we might know this word, that we might know you. I pray this morning if there are any here that don't know you, you have revealed yourself personally. They may be wondering, why am I here? Why do I exist? What's the meaning of life? You give the meaning of life because you are life. I pray that they would come to know you. And Lord, for your people that may struggle, that may be weighed down with burdens, that might be heavy-hearted, that they would put their eyes upon you, that they would lift their eyes to you, that they would lift their hearts and their minds, and they, they would know, as they do know, but, but Lord, would be confident that you, their only prayer and their only hope. We don't lift our eyes to the hills because we expect help to come from the hills. We don't trust in chariots. We don't trust in the military and mighty armies. We trust in you and you alone. We pray that your people, I pray that your people, would have full confidence in you and would walk with you, O oh Lord, day by day, filled to overflowing with your spirit and confidence in you and live life to the fullest in full obedience to you. I ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.